All right, well, we're about the midway point uh, between Thanksgiving and Christmas. I don't know about you, but I have barely had time to recover, and uh, here we are headed toward Christmas. By the way, um, you know, the rush with which we do this kind of makes me grinchy. I don't know about you, but yeah. Oh, if you are a Grinch, got some ideas for you. You could skip the Christmas holidays. And you could try some of these uh, holidays from other countries like Mexico. You could go for the Night of the Radishes. I'm serious. You can look it up. Or maybe you could go to Wales and celebrate dead horse caroling. Or Norway and the festival of Hide the Brooms. I must be Norwegian. I remember doing that some when I was a boy. You know, but... Many of us probably feel like it's too rushed and too short, and I'll tell you this morning, if you feel like the Christmas season is too rushed and too short, you might want to move to the Philippines. This is for you folks who actually like to have your trees up and lights up early in the fall. In the Philippines, they begin Christmas festivities in September, and they go through the first week of January. I don't know. If I was in the Philippines, I'd probably get pretty tired of hearing white Christmas and blue Christmas and all that other stuff for months is just a bit too much. But, you know, the good thing is it would give us time to think a little bit more deeply about the Christmas story, about the incarnation, about God coming to dwell among us. And that, that would be a good thing. You know, we get so caught up in the, in the holiday that we miss the holy day. We know it's Jesus' birthday, and, and other than basically maybe a Christmas Eve service and a reading of the story Christmas morning, we don't think much of it. We've grown up accepting the story without thinking very deeply about it. So, so what happens when a neighbor questions the plausibility of the virgin birth or, or mentions that he or she thinks a biblical account of Jesus' birth is just copied or stolen from Greek mythology perhaps? You know, if you have no answer to that, you can't really give testimony to the one true living God. And if you have no answer to that, those kind of questions could even plant a seed of doubt. So for the next two Sundays, this week and next week, we're going to investigate the Christmas story. What, what does the Bible account actually say about Jesus' birth? And is that account accurate? Is the Christmas story just a legend that the, that the writers of Scripture copied? Was Jesus truly born of a virgin, and does it make any difference? Does that, does that matter? And, and was Jesus really the Christ, the Messiah who fulfilled all of the biblical prophecies of the coming Messiah? Larry King was once asked what person from history he would most like to interview. And his immediate answer was Jesus Christ. And so, of course, the follow-up question was, well, what, what one question would you want to ask? And he said, I would want to ask him if he was indeed born of a virgin, the answer to that question would define history for me. Was Jesus really born of a virgin? You know, for those who have some doubts about the identity of Jesus, that would certainly be a strong confirmation of his divinity and the fact that he is indeed the Son of God. But Jesus isn't here for Larry King to ask, and I don't think anyone could prove that they were born of a virgin. How do you prove that? I mean, unlike the resurrection, with the resurrection, you have witnesses, you have an empty tomb, you have historians who recorded a very accurate account of the event. You don't have that with the virgin birth. 
And so the whole idea of God becoming man, of God taking on flesh, of God letting himself be put, placed in a limited human body, that whole idea is kind of mind-boggling. And yet at the very center of what we celebrate during this season, at the very center of the incarnation, is the virgin birth. If we believe that God became a man and was yet sinless, we have to wrestle with this issue of the virgin birth. You see, if Jesus had been born of both a man and a woman, that would mean he descended from the seed of Adam. And that would mean, having descended from the seed of Adam, he would have inherited the nature of Adam, and that's a sin nature. You know, we can't, perhaps we can't definitively prove the virgin birth, but if we could answer every question about that and all the other questions we have about God, we wouldn't necessarily need God, we wouldn't need faith, would we? There's some things we're going to have to just accept by faith, but while we can't prove the virgin birth, we don't accept it in blind faith. It should be consistent with, and it should make sense theologically with what we know from the Word of God, and it should even make sense scientifically. But why, why does it matter? Well, the virgin birth is foundational to our, to our faith. If we... If Jesus was not born of a virgin, then we have a pretty significant problem with the accuracy of the book that has been given to us to form and to instruct our faith. You see, the Bible clearly teaches that Jesus, the Son of God, was born to a virgin by the name of Mary. Let's look at the accounts this morning. We'll look in Matthew chapter 1. And then we'll flip over in just a moment to Luke chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from the sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. And now if you'll turn over to Luke chapter 1, and we will jump in at verse 26. Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus." He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, 
How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Well, as we have said before, if any part of Scripture is inaccurate, all of Scripture is inaccurate. None of it can be trusted. So if we're going to trust Scripture, if we're going to believe it's accurate, then we believe every part of it is accurate. And both in Matthew's account and Luke's account, they both claim that Jesus was born of a virgin. And, you know, scholars have, have pondered and, and really dug into the virgin birth for, for centuries. And they've come to all kinds of conclusions. And so we would ask this morning, is there any uh, reasonable evidence to accept the virgin birth by faith? Again, it's not a blind faith. There should be some regional, re- reasonable evidence to accept that. We're not going to be able to fully comprehend the depth of the mystery of incarnation. But there should be some reasonable evidence for us to accept that by faith. So, so why did God send his son in that way? Why did he have Jesus born of a virgin? Why did he just place him on earth without a birth? Why didn't he have him born in the normal way? Why did God send his son in that way? Why was the virgin birth even necessary? I want you to understand this morning two theological reasons that it was necessary for Jesus to be born of a virgin. Number one, we know it's a foundational biblical truth that Jesus was both fully God and fully man. Scripture's clear on that. And that's foundational to our faith. Well, virgin birth makes that possible. If Jesus was born of a virgin, as Scripture tells us, you have both a human participation and a divine participation. You have a human participation and influence in the birth of Jesus through Mary. You have a divine participation and influence through what we just read in Luke, in the words in Luke chapter 1, the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So the humanity of Jesus is evident in the fact that he was born of a human mother and the deity of Jesus is evident in the fact that Scripture tells us he's conceived in Mary by the power of the Most High or by the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is both fully God and fully man. That's an important theological truth. That's what Scripture tells us about Jesus, about the Son of God. Secondly, because Jesus was born of a virgin, because a man did not participate in his conception, he was able to be born without original sin. What do I mean by that? Well, ever since Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, from the very beginning, ever since sin entered the world through Adam and Eve, every one of us has been born with a corrupt human nature that comes from our first father, Adam. We're all descendants of Adam. We're all through that line, and so every one of us has inherited that sin nature. Well, Jesus, if you trace the genealogy, Jesus was not a descendant of Adam at this point That descent was broken. He was not a descendant of Adam, so Jesus did not receive a corrupt human nature with original sin. In fact, if you look again, if you have your Bible still open to Luke, you'll see that Luke declared that at his birth, Jesus was holy. 
was pure. He was set apart. He was without sin. And we know for the entire 33 years that he was on this earth, he, he never sinned. Now, you might say, well, what about Mary? Mary? Mary was a sinner. We don't believe that Mary was without sin. So if Jesus was born of Mary, how did he not inherit a sin nature from her? Again, Scripture's very clear. You go to Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, Scripture's very clear that sin entered the world through Adam. We've all inherited sin from Adam, from the man. But the second thing that we know from Scripture, we just read in Luke chapter 1, if you look again in verse 35, the fact that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit prevented the transmission of sin from Mary. Luke 135 says, the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child born to you will be holy. So theologically, we know that Jesus was born of a virgin because Scripture tells us that he was both fully human and fully divine. And theologically, we know that Jesus had to be born of a virgin. He had to be conceived by the Holy Spirit so that he would not carry the sin nature, the sin of Adam. Now, we live in an age of, of reason and science, so even though Scripture clearly lays out the theological reasons God had his son born this way, some critics would still question, some doubters would still question, well, is the virgin birth scientifically plausible? Does it even make any sense? Well, here's what we know. We know that scientifically, women lack the genetic material to create a male. It takes a Y chromosome to create a male, and women do not carry a Y chromosome. So for a male to be born, anyone who gives birth to a, to a boy, to a male, had to have received a Y chromosome, which could only come from another male, from the father of that child. So... For Mary to give birth to a son without a human father, it would have been necessary for this Y chromosome to be created from nothing and placed in the womb of Mary. That does sound pretty far-fetched, doesn't it? Let's kind of pause here for a moment. Let's go back to the start of this year, back to January, when we were studying the book of Genesis. Very important book, a very important study, because Genesis is foundational to our faith and our trust in the Word of God. Everything we believe rests on the truth of God's Word. Again, God's Word cannot be partially true. It has to be completely true. It cannot be mostly true. It has to be completely true. If it's not completely true, it's not totally true. If it's not totally true, then it can't be trusted. Are you following me? Let's go back to Genesis for just a moment, and let's consider what we discovered in Genesis, in Genesis chapter 1. If God's Word is true, then we know these things beyond any shadow of a doubt. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. Darkness is over the face of the deep. God said, let there be light, and there was light. God made an expanse and separated the waters, and God called the expanse heaven. God gathered all the waters and caused dry land to appear. God made the earth sprout vegetation, plants, and trees. God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night, and the stars. And God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves and every winged bird according to its kind. God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. That's what we know if we believe the word of God is true. That's what we know from the very beginning. 
So, so consider a moment, a God that is, that is so powerful, who is so powerful, he can create all that, and he created it all from nothing. Consider a God who is so intelligent as to bring order that we see in our world today, to bring order from chaos and create a universe that is so expansive we haven't even discovered all of the galaxies that are part of our universe yet. Consider a God who is so intelligent that he created a world with such precision that it could support human life as our world does. Considering all that God has created through his power and through his intelligence, what else might he be capable of? Oh, I didn't finish, did I? Verse 27. So God created man in his own image, male and female, he created them. So if God is capable of what we just read in the first chapter of Genesis, if he can create an entire universe, if he can create a world with a perfect, delicate balance that sustains life, if he can create a human body with all its intricate systems and a human body that includes 23 pairs of chromosomes, what is the big deal about creating a Y chromosome? It's no big deal. So God created, God provided a Y chromosome and placed that in the womb of a virgin named Mary. You see, if we believe that God had the power to create everything that exists, there's no reason to doubt that God could intervene in history in such a supernatural way as he did in the virgin birth. There's no reason to doubt it. And the virgin birth is important, again, because it points to the dual nature of Jesus, his humanity and his divinity. Why, why is that important to us? Well, because of his humanity, Jesus can relate to our situation. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, verse 14, and the Word became what? Flesh. And what did the Word, when the Word became flesh, what did the Word do? The Word dwelt among us. Jesus, God, dwelling among us, taking up residence. Literally, the, the picture in your mind would be, in thinking about God dwelling among us, would be that he pitched his tent in our camp. Now, I don't know if you've ever been tent camping. Some of you say you go camping, but it's, it's not camping. I've seen the rigs that you take when you go camping. I've been camping. It's different. I mean, when someone has their tent pitched right next to you, you're all up in each other's business, right? That's what it's saying. Jesus was that closely connected to us when he became flesh. Look on the screens, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. This is why his humanity is important to us. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Jesus, the high priest, understands our humanity. He, he understands what it's like to, to live life, to experience life in our world. He knows exactly what it's like. The only difference in Jesus and us is that he never sinned, that he was God. But he understands. We, we can't come to Jesus and say, well, you don't understand the pressure I'm going through. You don't understand how great this temptation is. He does. And he's a high priest who sympathizes with 
our weaknesses. Because of his humanity, Jesus connects to us. Jesus relates to us. Jesus understands us. We can approach the throne of grace with confidence because we know Jesus and we know that he understands us. But also because of his deity, Jesus is able to give us supernatural wisdom. He can make the power of God available to us And most importantly, it's Jesus who opens the gates of heaven for us. He's able to do that because of his deity. But when you think about the virgin birth and what Scripture tells us about that, you you would ask, is there anything else about the virgin birth that could strengthen our, our witness and our faith? And there is. When we consider the truth of the incarnation, when we consider the the testimony of Matthew and, and Luke, the New Testament writers who who claim and who echo Jesus' own claim that he was the Son of God, is there additional evidence beyond the virgin birth that would strengthen that for us and would strengthen our faith? Let's take a few minutes and consider how the Old Testament prophecies concerning Jesus would strengthen our faith and strengthen our case. We read a few moments ago from Matthew. Matthew's testimony that Jesus was born of a virgin. And in verses 22 and 23 of what we read from Matthew, he's actually quoting the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, Isaiah said, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. That prophecy by Isaiah was made more than 700 years before the birth of Jesus. More than 700 years. That alone should be enough. 700 years before Jesus was even born, the prophet Isaiah prophesied not only that he would be born, but that he would be born of a virgin. If that's not enough, I will tell you, if you go through the Old Testament And this would take a lot of work and a lot of time and a lot of effort. If you logged every prophecy about the Messiah, there were 450 unique, distinctive prophecies about the Messiah to come, and those prophecies were fulfilled to Jesus alone. You know, during the time of Jesus uh, and, and the time around that Jesus was on earth, there were over 40 Jewish men who claimed to be the Messiah. But he was the only one who fulfilled every prophecy about the Messiah who would be sent from God. Let me, just, let me just rattle off. I'm sorry if you're taking notes. This is going to be too fast for you. Let me just rattle off a few. And I'll tell you, if you want the references for all these, I don't have time to go through all those. If you want the references, if you'll just shoot me an email and ask me, I will give you all these references. Here's just a few of the Old Testament prophecies concerning Jesus. Virgin conception, born in Bethlehem, descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, a very specific genealogical line, He would perform miracles, he would cleanse the temple, he would teach in parables, he'd be rejected by the Jews. In Isaiah 52 and 53, again, 700 years before Jesus came and 700 years before crucifixion had even been invented, you find these prophecies. He'd be crucified with thieves, he'd be silent before his accusers, he would pray for his persecutors, he'd be stripped, his appearance would be greatly marred, and he would be the sacrifice for our sins. From Zechariah and Psalms, his side would be pierced, lots would be cast for his garments, his hands and feet would be pierced, he'd be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, no bones would be broken, he'd be scourged, he'd be spit upon, his flesh would not see corruption or decay, 
Why? Because he would rise on the third day. All of these prophecies and many, many others made hundreds of years before Jesus' birth and all completely fulfilled in Jesus alone. If that doesn't give you confidence in the Word of God and doesn't give you confidence in what we celebrate at Christmas, the birth of Jesus, that he was born of a virgin, that he was the Son of God, that he is the Son of God, just as he claimed, I don't know what else to do for you. If Jesus had not fulfilled the Messianic prophecies in the Old Testament, then our faith would would be baseless. If Jesus had not fulfilled all of these prophecies in the Old Testament, then Christianity would not be true, and celebrating the birth of Christ would be meaningless. Now, I will tell you this, because you're likely, if you have very many conversations with with skeptics, I will tell you this, if you have a very deep conversation, you're likely to hear some challenges to the scripture, to the prophecies about Jesus. And I'll say what I've said to you before, when people are skeptical, when people have doubt, their real problem is they don't want to accept and acknowledge the lordship of Jesus in their lives. They don't want to live his way. They want to live their own way. So they come up with all these arguments and all these ways of refuting what's very clear in Scripture. But let me mention the three main arguments to the prophecies of the Old Testament and their fulfillment in Jesus. The first is very simply called the altered gospel argument. And here's how this argument goes. Someone will say, well, you know, these gospel writers were followers of Jesus, And because they were followers of Jesus, they used the the Old Testament prophecies to fabricate details about Jesus to to make it appear like he was the Messiah. For instance, John must have known about the prophecy in Psalms that no bones would be broken. And so when Jesus was crucified, John made this story up that no bones were broken in Jesus' body without really knowing whether or not that was true. Or they'll say, well, you know, Matthew probably knew Zechariah's prophecy that, that Jesus would be betrayed, Messiah would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, and so he kind of played fast and loose with the numbers. He didn't really even check. He just told people in his gospel that Jesus was betrayed. Yeah, that's what Judas got, 30 pieces of silver. You know, the great news and the reason we can have confidence is in, in God's wisdom, he created balances both inside and outside the Christian community. When the Gospels were being circulated, they were being circulated among people. The Gospels were written early enough after Jesus' death, they were being circulated among people who were alive at the time these events happened. Well, how does that help? Well, first of all, for the Christians, and and you think about those who were martyred, gave their lives for the Gospel, for the Christians who, who wanted to communicate the importance of righteousness and the importance of truth, any of them could have come to, to Matthew or to John or to Luke and said, hey, you know that's not accurate. That, that's not going to help our cause. You, you need to correct that. But even beyond that, the, the Jewish community, those in the Jewish community who were not followers of Christ who are always trying to discredit the gospel and, and, and discredit Jesus, they would have quickly spoken up. Someone would have said among that crowd that was present at the crucifixion, no, 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 that's, that's not true. I was there. I, I saw them break Jesus' legs. 
Even in the Talmud, the Talmud was the, um, the, the primary text of Jewish religious law and theology. The Talmud was often very derogatory in speaking about Jesus, but even in the Talmud, never once is there the claim that the fulfillment of any prophecy about Jesus was false. So even those who didn't believe in him, even those who didn't have any respect for him, didn't deny these claims from prophecy. The second argument that's often made is what we call the intentional fulfillment argument. In other words, Jesus knew the prophecies that had been made in the Old Testament, and so Jesus arranged his own life and the circumstances of his life to fulfill the prophecies. Maybe he knew that in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, Zechariah prophesied the Messiah would enter Jerusalem on a donkey, and so easily he could have arranged that. Maybe he knew that Malachi prophesied the temple cleansing, so he read that and knew that he had to make sure that, that he did that to prove he was the Messiah. And, and perhaps there's so many prophecies, perhaps there are other few that could have been arranged. But I wonder how, before you're even born, you arrange your, your, your lineage. I wonder how you arrange your birthplace, how you arrange the, the timing of your birth. I wonder how you arrange all the details related to your crucifixion, that you would be crucified, that, that soldiers would, would gamble for your clothing. How do you arrange that your legs would not be broken, even though that was a common practice of the Romans during a crucifixion to speed up the process? The vast majority of the fulfilled prophecies about Jesus could not have been arranged, and yet he fulfilled every one of them. Let me tell you the final argument of the top three, and that's the coincidence argument. Jesus just accidentally fulfilled those prophecies. The events of his birth, his life, his crucifixion just coincidentally matched all the prophecies. 450, more than 450 unique, identifiable prophecies fulfilled only in Jesus. How is that coincidence? Peter Stoner, who's a mathematician and the, and the professor emeritus of science at Westmont College, calculated the chance of one person fulfilling just 48, 456 unique prophecies. He calculated one person fulfilling just 48 of these prophecies has a probability of 1 in 10 to the 157th power. And, and his calculations were confirmed by the Committee on Academic Science Affiliation. In other words, he was vetted and, and his, his calculation of the prophecies was confirmed. Just 48, not 456, just 48 prophecies being fulfilled in one man, the odds of that would be 1 in 10 to the 157th power. Now, if you're writing that out, you would put a 1 and you would follow that with 157 zeros. If you were speaking that, it would be 1 in 1 trillion, 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 trillion. That would be the odds. We can't comprehend that, can we? Can't even say that number. We have to say it in the trillions. So let's break it down a little bit. For one person to fulfill just eight, 456 unique prophecies, for one person to fulfill just eight 
unique prophecies, the chance is one in 100 million billion. Got that number pictured in your mind? That's also a statistical impossibility. One in 100 million billion. We, we can't even envision that. So let me illustrate it very simply to you. The state of Arkansas is 53,191 square miles. If you had 100 million billion silver dollars, they would cover the state of Arkansas, the entire state of Arkansas, 10 feet deep. The odds of, of one of you in this room being placed in a helicopter, blindfolded, and able to land anywhere in the state of Arkansas you chose, in this pile of 10 feet deep silver dollars, and get out of that helicopter and dig around in the pile as much as you want to, blindfolded, and pull out one silver dollar that had been previously marked secretly, the odds of you doing that is one in 100 million billion. You know, scientists and statisticians have a three-word phrase to describe the probability I just gave you. Here's the phrase. Ain't going to happen. <laughs> I probably should check with the other English major in the room and ask her if ain't is one word or two words. That could be a four-word phrase. And what we should say as people of this book as followers of Christ, what we should say is, ain't going to happen apart from some supernatural intervention. And that's exactly what happened. Jesus' birth, his life, his death were all planned by God. The events of his birth and life and death were all orchestrated by God and all planned out hundreds of years ahead when God declared through the prophets exactly what would take place when a Messiah would come. What child is this? The child that we separate during the Christmas season is, is the Son of God. He, he is God. He was born to live among us, show us the Father, born to die for us, to reconcile us to the Father, and he was resurrected, and he was ascended to prepare the way for us, for all who believe in this child, in the virgin birth of the Lord Jesus, for all of us to also be resurrected to eternal life. That's the story of Christmas. That's the child of Christmas. As you celebrate this Christmas season, think a little bit more deeply about what it means Christ was born.